As the world begins to emerge from the cave of the 21st century and opens its eyes onto the suffering from centuries of injustice and the bastardization of what it means to be free, the new Nomos podcast is a call. A call for a new beginning. A call for the new men and the new women that yearn to be truly free. A call for us to fulfill our destiny. A call for a new Nomos on the earth. Welcome to the New Nomos Podcast. I'm Abdallah Dutton, inviting you to join me on this journey of discovery to define what the New Nomos is and what we need to get there. About a month ago, I received a call from Idris Assad, who, after listening to this podcast, had got my number from a mutual friend, and we ended up having a conversation over the phone for almost an hour discussing various topics that have arisen from this journey so far. A week later, Idris was in Cape Town, literally for a weekend, flying all the way from Atlanta, and we were able to take the discussion a little bit further, which eventually led to this conversation being recorded to share not only Idris's knowledge of the history of black America, but also his vision to recreate the model of Greenwood, Oklahoma, a town that was dubbed Black Wall Street for its thriving economy and affluent African-American community, but taking this model to another dimension. How? By incorporating the principles of Muamalat into this vision. So, without much further ado, I present to you episode 17, Establish Yourself in the Land, Black America and Muamalat. The reality of the African American in America actually goes back to Mansa Musa. And his predecessor was Mansa Abu Bakr. And in about, I think it's the 1300s, yeah. he set sail to America with, if I'm not mistaken, 200 ships. And uh, he never came back. And America is not just North America, of course, we're talking South America as well. But there's evidence amongst the Indian tribes, specifically the Lakota tribe in America, of an interaction with men of dark skin. Even in uh, Mexico, in some of the jungles, they actually have statues that have the, the visual of an African man. And they say that these were teachers that came on a ship. Mm. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing, you know. And then just the other day, someone was telling me that a presentation was done at the University of Pittsburgh. It said that uh, the first attempts to bring slaves over were, were failures. I think they said only 10% sur survived. Survived the journey. Survived the journey. Wow. And it wasn't until, and this is actually documented on the log, it wasn't until a Mohammedan, as they called it, began to sing songs about Muhammad that the spirit of the people on the ship strengthened and the journeys began to be more successful. Wow. And, and, you know, in our history, we have clear accounts. We have the story of, uh, you know, for me, there are three elements. We have the story of an Amir, which was Abdurrahman, who uh, in, if I'm not mistaken, the 1700s, late 1700s, had a, a white man visit his, his village. He was sick. And so uh, the people took him to the Hakim. The Hakim brought him back to health. And of course, because he was a visitor, he got to meet the Emir and he went back to America. Well and good. Well, this same guy sees the Emir as a slave in America and is, and, and is shocked. And so he recounts his story and goes all the way to uh, the president of the United States. If I'm not mistaken, it was uh, John Quincy Adams mm -hmm. and uh, told the story. And so they found him, freed him sent him back to Africa on a ship. And before he died, because they, they, they kidnapped his entire family, before he died, they had found all but one of his children 
and sent him back to Africa. So he was from Futa Jalom, which was in Guinea. He was kidnapped, he was brought here, and he was returned to Africa because of what he had done for a white man. Whoa. You know, we have the other story of uh, Umar Ibn Said, who was a, another kidnapped African who was also from Futa Jalon, captured in a war. And uh, he studied Islam for 25 years before he was captured, memorized several books, as is the tradition in West Africa. And uh, he was kidnapped and brought over. The reason it's important for him is because he wrote his own autobiography. So there's actually an autobiography written by him. And uh, he told his story of being kidnapped, you know, how life was as a Muslim in Futa Jalon, being kidnapped, having to hold on to his Islam and hide it from the slave masters because their goal was to take the religion away and, and make you Christian. And uh, he kept his Islam to the end of his life. So there are stories of Muslims that maintain their Islam through slavery. And uh, I think the account is that uh, at least one out of three at minimum slaves that were brought over here were Muslim. Wow. Was that a kind of consistent statistic, so to speak? I mean, what years? Is this the 1500s? Is this... it, it spanned from the 1500s all the way to the early 1800s. So, I mean, that's a good through, whoa, 300 years? Yes. So I mean, yes. and that's what I'm saying. So for three hundred years, you've got these slave ships moving across the Atlantic. Are, are you saying that one third, at minimum, of all of the people over those three hundred years were Muslim? At minimum, one third. And you have evidence in a few areas. One, we just spoke about. We had an emir. Two, we spoke about. We had an alim. The other thing that you see, Booker T. Washington. Mm. who uh, founded Tuskegee University in, uh, in the late 1800s. Yeah. He saw his grandmother. This is an account that was given to us by his grandson. He saw his grandmother making salat one day, and he asked her, what are you doing? And she said to him, don't ever let them see you do this or they'll kill you. Well, his grandson told us that his name was not Booker. His name was Abu Bakr. Amazing. And, and, and so here you have a man who, whose focus was guilds and whose focus was being patient in the face of, of oppression and allowing the patience to give you the space to establish yourself in the land. And he established in, in the 1800s Tuskegee University, which is you know, still thriving today. What's interesting is one of the people who uh, studied under him was another man named W.E. Dubois who was the founder of the uh, NAACP. And uh, he broke away from the philosophy of tolerance of oppression and wanted to focus more on equal rights and using the evidence of how talented the African-American community was. And by do right, because one of the things that really gets lost, and it's really lost to African-Americans as well, is that at the point of emancipation, and even before emancipation, because there were areas there that the slaves had been freed, were given the opportunity. And when I say given the opportunity, I mean being left alone. They would establish themselves in the land in a way that was unprecedented. You have, for example, where Central Park sits right now, it turns out that that was a black settlement. It was called uh, Seneca Village. In that time, the laws were such that before an African-American to vote, he had to own land that was worth $250. And of course, back then, a dollar was actually worth something. Of the 100 men in New York State, there were 10 that lived in this one village that were able to meet the requirements to vote. And so here you have a thriving village that was taken by the government with what they call eminent domain and all of the history wiped away in order to make Central Park in New York. What time, what time was this? This was in the, in the uh, late 1800s as well. You know, there were, after emancipation, if I'm not mistaken, there were over 200 black settlements. And the epitome of them was this place called Greenwood in Oklahoma. It's known as Black Wall Street. Okay. And uh, 
in the early 1900s, I think it was around 1909 or something like that, a brother named O.W. Gurley, who uh, had just finished doing some job with the, the then president of the United States and had become wealthy, went and bought 40 acres of land in Greenwood, Oklahoma, with the clear intent of only selling to African-Americans. Now, mind you, emancipation is happening in the 1860s. And so here we are some 40 years later, and this man who had himself become a millionaire is buying 40 acres of land with the intention to sell only to African-Americans. Another brother sees what his, his, his uh, vision is, J.B. Stratford. He comes in, he's a lawyer. He buys several parcels of this land in order to develop it for businesses and for uh, residential living with the intention to only sell to African-Americans. And he also makes a hotel. And he uses this hotel to court the different elements that are needed to make a city. So he's bringing in, in doctors, he's bringing in teachers, he's bringing in skilled craftsmen, so forth and so on. In a matter of 15 years, they have a 35 square mile city with 600 businesses. And the industry is such that African-Americans who would make half the wage they made in, in the rest of the United States would actually come and work for African-Americans in this town and make double the wage. In today's money, it would have been worth over a billion dollars. An example is the fact in Oklahoma at that time, there were only two airports in the entire state, yet six families in this town owned private planes. What was the name of this of this city again? Called Greenwood, Oklahoma. So it's no, uh, actually uh, Booker T. Washington, who was in the later stages of his life, dubbed it Black Wall Street. Mm. Uh, the people of the town called it the New Africa. And the interesting part about it is that were you to say Black Wall Street to an African-American today, the only thing they would be able to tell you about is the massacre that happened in the 1930s where a mob of, of, of incited white men came and burned the village down. And it's, it was gone in, in, in a matter of a night. 300 people, women and children were murdered. Several thousand others were injured and an entire city wiped away. Whoa. And, you know, this is just one example because it, it, around that time period, that was pretty much what was going on. Anywhere that African-Americans had established themselves in the land, the evidence of it was pillaged. And uh, there are many accounts of it. And so from my understanding, it was the only way for them to create the narrative that to this day even exists with African-Americans, which is a disconnect from who we are. So up until that time, you see a people who were not even broken by slavery. One of the things that, that were, was accounted was the adab that the men had. If you think about it, many of these men had studied Quran, studied fiqh, so they had the adab when they came over. And if not, then it was inherited from whoever the leader of, of the group was. Hmm. And, you know, slavery was, was not good. But at the end of the day, you know, I have some biographies from, from different slaves. And, and, you know, it depended on who, whose land you were on. Because of the humanness of the situation, that adab most likely affected some of the plantation owners. And now you're dealing with the fact that the, the reason that America's wealth grew exponentially was because of the value that was associated with slaves. And so, you know, it was law. Slavery was legal. But from that, you see a people that remained a community. And then in the time of their emancipation or at any point in time where they had freedom, you see groups of these people establishing themselves in the land to a degree where uh, going back to Greenwood, they said that a dollar would cycle within the city 35 times before it left. It will remain within the village a year before it left. To this day, it hasn't been replicated. And if you can imagine, if that were to have continued, you know, the vision was not to be equal with white people. The vision was not to see yourself as black. The vision was community mm. and the ability for them to establish community 
in the way they did was a clear inheritance of Muamala. Amazing. And I mean, what I'm hearing at the same time is what Ibn Khaldun called Asabiya, which is Asabiya. kind of like the, the best translation in English is in French, <laughs> Esprit de corps, but that kind of that, that group energy, because that's, that's what I'm hearing. I mean, you, you have, you have a grouping, let's take one grouping of slaves on one plantation. They had a camaraderie among themselves that they kept, you know, even when they were free of this, of being slaves. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, and, and, and the other interesting thing that's happening at that same time is, is the banks are taking over and the country ceases to be a republic and becomes a corporation. And so for me, what I see is that in that 1920 to 1940 time period, a clear focus on the need to stop the rise of these free African-Americans. Because the other thing that was a clear statistic is that at that point, we were bringing ourselves out of poverty at a rate that was not matched by any other group. And we had the highest amount of married couples and the lowest amount of children born out of wedlock. That was then. Now, after the criminalization of the African-American man, which was partially started with the way they incited the mobs that burned down a lot of these towns. For example, in the case of Black Wall Street, a young man was at a hotel, he was a shoe shiner. At that time, outside of the city, everything was segregated and the only bathroom that he could use was on the top floor of this hotel. So he goes in to the elevator and, as the elevator is going up, it has a jolt. It, you know, it, it has a surge. And uh, the white woman who's the porter of the elevator falls over. She screams and he gets out of that elevator and darts out of there. Why? Because there were lynchings that had begun to happen in Tulsa. And he feared for his life because the sound of a screaming white woman means the death of a black man. They immediately uh, tried to persuade this woman to say that this was an attempted rape. She refused to sign any documents saying that he did not harm her. This is what happened. And uh, they went forward with this story of uh, a white woman had been attacked. They put it in all the newspapers and it was enough to create a mob to go and burn down this entire town. And so that type of story was very common. So the criminalization of the black man is, is, is one thing. The second thing that you see is that in around 1939, they create this food stamp program and they target the African-American women. The way this program works is that based on the amount of children you have, you'll get a stipend from the government. And if you look at it, it was enough to keep the woman from working. The more children you had, the more money they gave. The rule was that there could be no man in the house. And so here you've criminalized the black man and now you've made it a, a, an incentive for a woman to have children outside of wedlock because she should not have a man in the house if she is going to receive funding from the government. And so now today we have the lowest percentage of married couples and I think over 70% of our children are born out of wedlock. And what this has done is it's given the opportunity to use the African-American story as uh, a proxy for this racism, for this black and white situation, which also destroyed the tribal relations that a lot of the white community had as well, because you had Irish Americans, Italian Americans, German Americans, all of which grouped with their own parish. And now it's been turned into a situation where everything is, is black and white. And in reality, everyone is enslaved by the banking system. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's also very interesting because you look at someone like uh, Martin Luther King and uh, his wife, Coretta, said that uh, 
they didn't come after my husband until he began to understand economics. Okay. And in a very short time, he was killed. And if you look at the difference in his speech toward the end of his life, he had a stronger relationship with Al-Hajj Malik Al-Shabazz, Malcolm X. And uh, the tone of his speech changed. And it changed in the way of establishing yourself in the land. And with the amount of influence that he had, they had to get rid of him. So the story for me is that, is that my people don't have to look that far back to find out who they are. Who they are is actually a part of the story of America. And the way that they will reclaim that connection is the establishment of Muamalah, is the establishment of a clean place that is able to thrive on its own, no government assistance, people working together and living together with the true understanding of community, which was something that through the passage of the Atlantic, through chattel slavery, through emancipation and, and, and suddenly no longer living on the plantation of a master and, 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 and living in America, we still held on to. And it wasn't until this last hundred years that it was something that was lost. But uh, it's something that we can reclaim. You touched on the subject of economics. And earlier, I mean, you, you mentioned that Greenwoods was this kind of exemplar of, you know, what they called it Black Wall Street. But I mean, it was it was a thriving economic hub, regardless of color. Yes. Would you say that it was targeted because of the financial success that was happening yes. there? Yes. It, you have to also look at the, the, the time period. This is around the time of the World Wars, and this is right before the Great Depression. If you think of it, here you have a community of, or communities, several communities of people who outside of their precincts are segregated, outside of their precincts are treated as if they are less than human. And it's interesting because there was a man in the late 1800s, his name was Edward Wilmot Blyden, and he wrote a book called Christianity and Islam and the Negro Race. And he was sent as a missionary to West Africa with the goal of spreading Christianity. And in, the, in his visits, he encountered Muslims. And so he makes a statement in this book where he says that the Negro, which is the way they, they used it then, uh, the Negro accepts Christianity through proscription. And uh, I'm looking at this word proscription. I had to immediately look it up. And what it says is, is proscription means someone who is inferior, someone who is less than. So you, you, you look at the way it was set up. And in order for the African-American to accept his slaveness and his inferiority, he had to accept that he wasn't going to become white until he went to, to heaven. And he had to accept Jesus as, as his savior. The Bible that the African-Americans were given had several pages torn out of it and only had a narrative that spoke of them in the position of proscription. He went on to say that the Muslim accepts Islam and based on his aptitude has the ability to reach any level of society that he can. And so you look at what's happening in this time period, in these villages, their money and their existence is not affected by what's happening outside. And so here you have these strong, thriving communities where you have every element to the point where white people would have to travel to these black settlements in order to even get certain products because they were the only ones who had it. There were actual African-Americans who were oil barons in this time period. And so in order for this narrative of this Great Depression to work, this couldn't exist. 
And if at the same time you wipe this out and at the same time criminalize them and, and, and make them into the inferior community, then you have a chance to do what's been done in America, which America is the most enslaved population in the world. You know, they, their freedoms are their enslavements, mm. you know? And so, yes, I, I, I feel that the economic prowess and the community development skills that African-Americans had was a threat. Mm. You know, a, a, another evidence you have is uh, the rap game. You know, you, you remember you had a lot more political rap. You had uh, Public Enemy and, and you had Black Uhuru and all of these groups. And then suddenly they stopped. Well, it stopped right around the time that the prison industry was was booming and they just started building prisons all over the country. And there's actually a, a, a story that's told by, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Bone Thugs and Harmony. Of course. Yeah. Well, well, well one of the members, uh, and, and I, I can send you this, you'll, you'll, it's amazing. But one of the members told the story about how right when they were signing with the record label, so they were young, young cats. Someone came in who was uh, part of the production of everything and said that, you know, no more of this political rap. Now you have to rap about drugs and, 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 and running women and, you know, money and, 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 and all of this, 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 this nonsense. And it was made very clear. Our goal is to fill the prisons. And so if you think about it, the music that the youth are listening to are what will drive them to be criminals and turn them away from self-sufficiency. It's all about living beyond your means and taking what you don't have and glorifying in what you do, which makes you a target for crime. And it justifies that a whole generation of African-American men are in prison. Just on the topic of rap, and since we're here, what's your view on Tupac? Tupac is definitely interesting. You know, his, his mother was a, a Black Panther. Mm -hmm. And Tupac himself was very charismatic. He unfortunately also fell in that time period where uh, if you listen to his some of his first songs, I think uh, the one that caught me was Brenda. Brenda's got a baby, mm -hmm. but Brenda doesn't have a brain. He was coming with that political rap. The message was hard. Now, what was so amazing about him was that he was able to hide within his lyrics self-sufficiency and establishing yourself in the land. Mm. You know, that's why there are actually to this day studies that are done even in Yale on his rap music, because on the surface it spoke one story, but the level of his eloquence was such that he had a hidden message in his rap. So yeah, Tupac was 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 unique. I was with Yasin Bey Mostef in Cape Town while he was while he was spending some time here, and we'd just come from a lunch and we were leaving and 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 he was just there in front of me and I asked him I I said to him I said you know Yasin I have to ask you did you ever meet Tupac and he said you know it's funny you asked me that because we had a lot of the same mentors along our journey, you know, uh, Quincy Jones and this one and that one. And, but he said that he, he never formally met him. Um, mm. But he was in Los Angeles and one of his friends said that Park's going to go to this one club. So he goes to this club and he's there and, they, you know, they're doing their thing, whatever. And he says he comes outside to, I don't know, smoke cigarettes, smoke whatever. And he said this, he just remembers this Bentley pulling up outside and in the back was Tupac. And he said he looked in his eyes and he just in looking in his eyes, he knew something was wrong. Yeah. And he said to him, he's just like, what's up, Pac, or whatever it was. Then the Bentley sped off and was chased by another car. And he said he knew something was wrong. And it was that week that, that you know, Tupac was shot. Yeah. So yeah. it was like, it was a real anecdote from a man that was in that world. I don't know, because I, what I see in Tupac, he's also a poet as well. I mean, he wrote some yes. 
beautiful poetry. But what I saw is, I mean, this he died when he was 26. Yes, very young. And you see what he did, you know, from yes. 18 to 26. Yes. I mean, he was, uh, what, prolific. Yes. You know? I mean, what he produced in, the, in that short amount of time was, you know, impressive. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the, the good and the bad of it, the good is the fact that in a sea of, of, of entertainers, you have this phenomenon of this special character that, that has such an impact. The impact that Tupac had bridged gaps. But the bad of it is that the evidence of being able to do more than that is something that has to be brought back mm. to African-American community. Just like I said, you know, if, if, if you mention Black Wall Street to an African-American, they're going to simply tell you that it was burned, that it was a great town, thriving town, and it was burned down. But no one can tell you how it was formed. Mm, okay. Okay, I get you. So there's a there's a break in the in the history. There's a break in the history. You know, it's it's interesting because it takes you back to the beginning of uh, slavery, and at the beginning they had a hard time with the slaves until one slave master came up with this book on how to break a slave, small pamphlet, and. Uh, what he said was that you have to take all of the men and sit them on one side of the room. And then you take the prepubescent boys and you sit them on the other side of the room with the women. And then of these men, you take the strongest and most influential of them. And in the center of the room, you take this man and you tie one arm and one leg to one horse and tie the other arm and other leg to another horse and have them gallop in opposite directions and split them in half. And then you go to the young boys that are with their mothers and say to them, this will happen to you if you listen to those men. You can see its effect. The situations that I was describing earlier is a, is a narrative that they don't want you to know, but it was not the narrative of all African-Americans, but it was the narrative that if you imagine, if these places were, had been allowed to, to, to thrive, Remember, the intention of Greenwood was to create a town for us, by us. And if that was the intention, then it could have only gone forward by the same intention. We taking care of each other, we forming our own community, not based on having any desire to say we're against the white man, but out of a protection for each other. And with the doors open and welcome, I mean, there. if you look at the history of, of, of uh, Black Wall Street, even white people would come to Black Wall Street to get loans from the banks that were in Black Wall Street because they could afford to lend. So there was no discrimination, but what there was was community. And that is the, the thing that has to be cured now. I want to know your perspective on black lives matter as a movement and like you said even like even when we're talking about tupac and the good of it and the bad of it well the black lives matter movement is a continuation of the actual destruction of the black family a short time after the black lives matter movement became famous there were people uh, who had done the research and actually gone on their website to find out who these people were. Black Lives Matter was formed by a group of uh, gay women, I think that's legal to say, and their goal written on their website was to prove the lack of need of a patriarch in the home. Their goal was to Eliminate man. This is literally on their website. I can't remember all of the elements to it. And so you say, well, then how does this work? How do you have something that says Black Lives Matter? Well, that's the whole thing. The key in America is following, especially today, you have to follow the money. They were funded by George Soros. And how clever then to take a statement that's quite obvious that Black Lives Matter 
and make it your mantra. The reality of, of African-Americans being killed by the police is a real reality. But the reality of Americans being killed by the police is also a real reality. If you do the statistics, actually more white men are killed by the police than black men every year. But if you look at the demographics, African-Americans, I don't think we make even 30% of the population. So based on that rate, it's a much, much higher rate of African-Americans that get killed by mm. the police, by statistics. Yeah. The, the, the number is more whites, but by ratio, it's more blacks. The reality is that when you can put a camera to it and you can put it on the news and you can sensationalize it, then you can push a certain narrative because the amount of African-Americans and people in general that are killed by police goes unknown. But when there's an agenda and part of the agenda is to to keep people separated, you know, the Napoleon uh, approach is 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 uh, create chaos so that you can control them. And the chaos of America is to continue to build on the psychosis that the people have where everything is a fantasy. What you see on the news drives your emotion. What you see in the movies drives your emotion. Yet. Anyone who visits America, when you travel America, you'll find that American people are not what you see in the movies. Black people are not what you see in the movies. I'll give the example of a guy who works uh, with me. Here's a brother who has a very Southern draw, very gruff, yet he owns machines and he does utility work. You know, he, he, he'll take 10 acres of land, reading plans, dig all the sewer lines, put him in and establish infrastructure. So I went up to him and I asked him, I said, uh, you know, who did you learn this from? He said, I learned this from my father. I said, okay, cool. So what year was your father born? He said, uh, he did the math. He said, I think around 1919. I said, okay. So who did your father learn this from? He said, he learned this from his father. His father did the same thing. So you can presume that his grandfather was born in 1900. You mm. see where I'm coming from? Yeah. So so here so here you have uh, this example of inheritance today mm. that the average person, black or white, doesn't even know that this career exists. And this man, the contract he signed with us was uh, uh, over two hundred thousand dollars for the project that we're doing. Wow. His contract alone, and we're not the only contract that he has. Yeah, and he yeah, probably yeah. doesn't have a high school diploma. He clearly doesn't have a, a master's degree in college but he's inherited a trade. And the problem he has is who's gonna inherit it from him. I mean, there's an example, like you said, of inheritance and it's not inheritance of, of money or land or assets, but it's the inheritance of a knowledge. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's like the give a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach a man to fish and feed him for life. And here you see the grandfather's passed it to the son, who's passed it to his son. And, and therein lies the need for the Black Lives Matter movement. The Black Lives Matter movement was snuffed out by African-Americans. The only people who you find touting Black Lives Matter in mass today mm. are white liberals mm. to the point where you'll see groups of them as you're driving down the street in black neighborhoods, holding up signs, wanting you to beep, beep your horn at them, showing that, look, we're, we're white and we think black lives matter. And it's like, you know, it's such a distraction from what's the most important thing. You know, you're losing your homes in your neighborhood because the values are increasing and you don't have the ability to, to, to afford to stay. And mind you, this is something that you inherited from your grandfather who worked in a factory and paid his home off before he passed away, leaving it to your grandmother, and you're going to lose the home because you have no, no, no connection. The connection has been broken. Wow, yeah. Oh, yeah, I wanted to also ask you about the ghetto as an entity, but then also the, the economics. And then look, please, to take a step back, I haven't been to the States. I've never seen a ghetto in the United States. Obviously, I'm in South Africa, 
you know, I've been to the townships here. It's a, it's a, I, I don't know how it compares. The shanty towns here, or I would assume, are on another level. It's a, it's a different, it's a different thing. But in the United States, the ghettos do exist. The phenomenon of the ghetto is best really explained by Harlem, Harlem, New York. Harlem, New York, was the epicenter for for black establishment. Children would go to school wearing suit and tie. Businesses were thriving and they were black owned. Uh, and, and mind you, Latino and black are to a degree synonymous in America. So you had Harlem, you had Spanish Harlem, but they were one. You know, to typically the people from the Caribbean, whether Jamaican or whatever, they lived in Spanish Harlem. Uh, and the descendants of, of of slaves would be in the other part of Harlem, but it was there was no separation, right? And even up to a certain point, Irish, because the Irish were considered black when they first got to America. Interestingly enough, the Black Code, which was legislation that put land sanctions on their values, the uh, inability for uh, you to work in certain, in, especially places like New York, where it's a union state, in order, you know, you just can't work. The unions were created to snuff out black craftsmen, right? And so at the same time, you've criminalized the men and you've, you've made this situation with the women, you've created a level of desperation. And that's how the ghettos were formed. So interestingly enough, the ghettos have, for all intents and purposes, been eliminated. Ghettos that were like here in Atlanta, you had Capitol Homes, Grady Homes, Herndon Homes, East Lake Meadows. These, these were the names of the actual ghetto projects that you would you, you knew if you were going to cross through there, you better pack your lunch. You know, it's, it's, it's rough dealing in there. They're all gone. And the reason that they're gone is because of the necessity has been wiped away. The concentration on, on, on community building and group economics has been totally wiped away. And what the ghettos were, were the results of creating this vision of poverty. And it's interesting because America is such, you, when you come, you'll see America is a vast land. The story that you're speaking of is the story of the cities. Whereas the second you step out of the city, and you go into country areas, you'll still see remnants of African-Americans that have inherited from the previous generations and are established in the lands. And in many cases, they're in a, a, a town where there are black people and white people and they all you know, get along. I mean, it, my, my landscaper would tell us the story of how, you know, when he was younger, he was uh, riding his, uh, his uh, dirt bike, motor dirt bike through some land to get to where his friends were. He was taking a shortcut. This is in Atlanta, just outside of the, of the city. It's now developed now, but it was real country back then. And on his way back, there was a guy, a white man, sitting on the back of a pickup truck with a shotgun. And he jumps in front of the bike with the shotgun. And of course, you know, he stops immediately. And the white guy's like, you know, what are you doing on my land? This is my land. Well, he was like, you know, well, well, you know, I'm just trying to get home. I'm just trying to get home. And it was getting dark. He said, let me see your face, boy. So he shows him his face and he says, are, are you uh, are you Mr. Bigby's son? He's like, yeah, yeah, that's my father. He's like, oh, OK, your father's your father's a good man. You know, go ahead. Go ahead. You're you're you're, you're free to go. He said, now, be careful, because I laid out tax. So by the time you get home, you might have a flat tire. But. The 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 energy of uh, of of uh, segregation was a social construct. I even you know in this day and age, I'm a, I, I'm a cabinet maker by trade, and uh, I wanted to be in a custom cabinet shop. Everywhere that was hiring me were these places that just like big factory cabinets, this and that. And so I found this like small quaint cabinet shop. And called the guy, he had the perfect voice, Southern drawl. I'm like, you know, I'd like to come interview. He said, come on by, interview with me. And so I get there and it's, it's this white guy, Grady McWhorter. And uh, 
he asked me a few questions about woodworking. I answered them properly. He was like, you're hired. But he said, but now let me tell you, I may call you nigger, but, but I won't mean anything by it. He said, you know, I grew up in the segregated South and we used the word nigger. He said, uh, now you have to understand that everything I've learned, I learned from niggers, even down the time I shoot. I learned how to do woodwork from niggers. I learned how to meet women and talk to women from niggers. I wouldn't mean anything by it. I just want you to know that if I were to say it, I don't want you to be offended. And I literally, and I'm, 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 I'm a teenager at that time. I had to think, hey, can I handle this? So I, I took the job and he never called me nigger. But that kind of gives you some insight to the narrative and the reality. Given your analysis of the historical context in which we, all, I mean, really, regardless of color, skin color, and just where we all find ourselves today, what are you working on to really create a better future? I'm working on establishing a piece of Darul Islam in America. And by that, I mean establishing a clean place where the example of Mu'amalah is practiced and not spoken. Mm. A place where we have Al-Qaf, land that is, is dedicated to Allah and is in service of the community at the center and surrounded by trade of the highest quality, surrounded by residential areas. And that's just a small beginning, but essentially it is uh, going to be a reflection of the beginning of Black Wall Street, but combining all of the inheritance, combining the inheritance of Abdurrahman, the Emir, combining the inheritance of Umar ibn Sa'id, the, the alam, combining the adab of men who, out of love of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, men and women that hear and obey and work together to establish community. It's the reason that I have focused on being a developer because uh, it is infrastructure is, is, is the main element that is missing in not just the Muslim community, not just the African-American community, but the community of, of Americans in general who would find themselves free. We have different laws in this land that, that allow us to do things that can't even be done in the Muslim world that are more of a reflection uh, of Islam than what you see in, in many parts of the Muslim world. Part of my mission is is to have legislation written to help support what we're trying to do. And in the process, we were trying to clarify the Nisab of Zakat and the fact that the Nisab is not simply Mithqal, but that when Zakat is paid with money, it is Dinar and Dirham. And so we're, 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 we're looking at books to fiqh and there's this statement that says Zakat which is the zakat of money, is to be paid with gold and silver or anything that people are using that it's equivalent, i.e. dollars, you know, pounds, euros, so forth and so on. And so I, I, I say to the Arabic teacher, who's the one that has the access to these books, I say that, you know, this, this is clearly something that is modern. You keep saying modern text. I said, I would love to see what the text said about 150 years ago. And at the push of a button, he's like, huh, let's do that. And he pulls up the same text 150 years ago, written by a, a scholar of that time. And we flip through the pages and we get to the page of Zakat and it simply says gold and silver and it doesn't have this other statement. And he's wow. floored, he's floored. And so he also noticed that it, it, it looks at gold and silver completely different than it did a hundred years ago mm. because 
that what began to be this thing is that gold became so so valuable that you had to separate if you're going to pay and go to use the nisab of gold it's so expensive that most people won't pay zakat so they recommended using the nisab of silver right and so what you see is that the the history of what we have is the solution to the problem the is upholding the weights and measures of the gold and silver which is something that we can do here in America on, on on this land that I'm talking about just like in Disney World you spend Disney dollars on this land you'll spend gold and silver the only way this can be done is from a position of ability and so for this reason my focus has been development i've been blessed to have a product that appreciates in value and uh we will use this inshallah as the basis to just as it was done in greenwood oklahoma in 1906 we'll do the same thing in 2021 to uh begin to reestablish black wall street but it'll be a uh, muamala wall street uh, for anyone that's been listening to this and i guess is in the states how can people help you in taking your vision of reestablishing black wall street muamala wall street muslim wall street however you want to define it how can people help you make this vision a reality i'd have to be very blunt on this answer <laughs> Yeah. They'd have to begin with trust. Mm. They'd have to begin with trust. They'd have to begin with trusting a person who has been given the permission to lead the project and they would have to be 100% committed to by any means necessary bringing whatever they have within themselves and presenting it to be a part of this vision. the point of the land development is for the people is to carve out a section and give it back to Allah so that it can be the vortex by which everything else receives its baraka it will take people who are willing to establish divine law over themselves in a place where the goal is to put out the light of divine law yet at the same time in this place divine law has the freedom to establish itself it's quite an oxymoron because america is the belly of the beast yet the freedoms that exist here if this is done in the proper way which means if it's feasible law then we have every right to adhere to the last ayat of of surah fath which is the victory where allah says in the land of the christians it's as if you plant a tree and the tree establishes its roots deep in the ground and it grows strong and then it produces fruit and it's the fruit that becomes the discriminating factor of those who believe and those who don't we need to exemplify what we've inherited as muslims we need to reconnect it to what we've inherited as people of this country the different tribes which includes not only the african americans it includes the native americans it includes the different tribes of whether it's irish or italian or german or anyone that has migrated here it includes the generations of of people who have come from muslim countries who have found that their children don't want to be muslim this will bring them back to islam because this will be the example of community and self sufficiency and when you say that i just i mean i think those terms are often community and self sufficiency it often has a kind of connotation of kind of new age slash hippie 
but what I understand from what you're doing is it's it's not some kind of utopian hairy fairy kind of future thing. I mean, this is it's it's reestablishing the example that you mentioned earlier of Black Wall Street. It even goes beyond Islam. It's for the American people. Allah says in the Quran that none of you truly believe until everything is for Allah and his messenger. And so by that token, why were we kidnapped from civilization where we were established in the land where the norm for us was to memorize the book of Allah and to memorize these books and to 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 live in a certain level of 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 comfort why were we taken to this this place and why were we brought through all of this and it's only to have the 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 ability to establish yourselves in the land and to give the people what they were really looking for, which is freedom. <laughs> it's so brilliant. I mean, you teach the American people the true meaning of freedom. Yeah, I mean, it's so cool because there are large group of Americans, uh, they call themselves patriots now, that are taking a stand against fiat currency. And in large groups, they gather and they say, death to the Federal Reserve. You have uh, legislation in multiple states where the honoring of the contract of the American Constitution, which itself says that currency shall be gold and silver. And these states are reestablishing the ability to trade in gold and silver. And it can only, for those who understand economics, which right now in America, the majority of the people that would understand this are non-Muslims. And even in their speeches, they mention that the people who have the secret are the Muslims because it's evidenced in their history and their destiny is to go against fiat currency and their way produces the ability to survive without fiat currency. And so, you know, they, they, there's a story they tell that if you in 1960 were to take $20 and bury it in a box and take $20 worth of gold and bury it in a box, and you unearthed it today. Today, one person would have $20 and the other person would have almost $20,000. And so when you, when you, when you look at the, 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 the reality of, of this, the thing, it's not to say, okay, we want to destroy the dollar. No, what we want to do is preserve our ability to trade amongst each other and for our wealth to not be compromised. And this is why you go back to the destruction of these black settlements, the value of their money, because it stayed within their community, was not affected in the same way as outside of their community, where people received money and it immediately left the community. The key is being able to trade amongst each other, live amongst each other, trust each other, have the elements that are needed for that particular community to survive. One community may be based on agriculture. Another community be, may be based on computer technology. Another community may even be based on producing athletes. But all of these communities will have a reason for people to work together and live amongst each other. The element that has to be there is the trade, and the ability to communicate with, with other communities. And this is something that can be done here. And if we can do it here, like they say, if you can do it in America, you can do it anywhere. Thank you for listening to this episode. The one thing that really affected me was the description of how the slave owners on the plantations conditioned the young boys into their slavery. The boys were put with the mothers 
and the strong men were tortured and mutilated and abused to instill fear just made me think that the, the the principles still remain just the weapons are different in an age where we're all slaves to the usurious monetary system whether that's in deepest darkest africa the united states china or beyond we're all enslaved by the banking system and it's this same system that is destroying the human regardless of color regardless of race or creed or nation so here with Idris Assad you have a man in Atlanta on the verge of putting Muamalat into action this is inspiring this is exciting this is motivating and this is the future of America and this is the future of the world thank you